All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter. I'm loving. We'll start in chapter 1. We'll start back a little bit into what we looked at last time and then move forward. 1 Peter, starting in chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Here's the operative phrase, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have the sense that you would open our eyes in this passage to some glorious realities, to some gospel comfort. We only pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. It's here. It's evident. We're the ones that have a hard time seeing it, O oh Lord. So show us our privilege. Show us the great grace that is ours. Uh, open the eyes of our heart, we pray, in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Peter's last little... Side note, sidebar of encouragement before he jumps into, okay, now do this. And uh, it's, it's some more encouragement for suffering. Are you ready for more encouragement and suffering? I'm always ready for more encouragement and suffering. I, it's actually always a safe bet as a pastor to preach sermon on suffering. It's always easy to apply because God's people are always suffering. Satan's always assaulting the church. You can probably feel it in our church. It comes in waves. Of attack, The world is always trying to press you, choke you into compromise. And it can reach you just about anywhere through your phone. Nature is unfriendly, full of danger. Just a few weeks ago, your pipe's all freezing and body's breaking down. And, and you still have a traitor in your own heart. The old man who loves his sin. So you suffer. You suffer a lot. It's all relative, but you suffer a lot. And I know that at any given moment, every family in our church has their own stuff that they're dealing with, their own what's the next thing, what's the next thing, and I've often driven, driven through neighborhoods thinking that every house in this neighborhood in Matthews, every house in this neighborhood in Indian Trail, Valentine, anywhere, uh, every house has their own source of quiet desperation. So because of all this, I think the temptation is to feel kind of small, to feel kind of defeated in the face of all the powerful suffering in the world. The temptation is to feel pitiable. But Peter's letter gives us a different perspective on this tonight. He says, no, no, you're not pitiable. You're privileged. Privileged. And I don't mean in a, a, a new post-structuralist CRT kind of way. I mean in an eternal kind of way. You're privileged. You might be going through some intensely difficult suffering right now. You say, well, how so? Uh, tell me how I'm privileged. Well, that's what the rest of this sermon's about. 
It's about how privileged that you are as a Christian. How privileged you are because of what you've been given. How privileged you are because of who gave it to you. How privileged you are because of when he gave it to you. And how privileged you are because of who he didn't give it to. Those four points are clear as mud right now, but they'll be clearer later. So let's take these points up one at a time. I'll say them again at the start of each one. So reason number one, you're privileged because of what you've been given. Now this is something we've been talking about all through First Peter. We've been talking about a living hope. We've been talking about this salvation, all these things. And, and he's just sort of mentioned the word salvation in verse 9. And uh, right after he mentions the word salvation, he says, okay, I'll go off into a little sidebar here for you a little while. And he refers to this great thing that we've been given, actually, I think, in three different ways, three synonyms. First, it's referred to as your salvation. You've been given a salvation, verses 9 and 10, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, let's talk about the salvation a little while. Concerning this salvation, so this is really the subject of, the whole set, of this whole set, section. It's your salvation. Salvation is the word that, for what you've been given, stated negatively. Because you've been saved from a lot of evil things. You've been saved from a harsh world. You've been saved from fierce enemies. You've been saved from indwelling sin. Saved from the devil. Saved from death. Saved from God's wrath. Saved from hell. You've been given a salvation in Christ. It's the first thing it's called. What you've been given. You've been saved from things. Second, though, he also refers to it as grace. Verse 10 calls it the grace that was to be yours. It's the same thing stated positively. It's not just what you've been rescued from negatively. It's what you've been given. So you've been given grace because you're a Christian and you have the unmerited favor of God and you have eternal life and you have unconditional love and you have the glories of heaven and you've been given the riches of the inheritance of the children of God and you'll be with him forever. You've been given great grace. So you've been given salvation. You've been given grace. Deliverance from all evil. The gift of all that's good. You have it all because of third. Of the good news announced to you in verse 12. The good news, he says, of the sufferings of Christ on your behalf. The good news of his promise to raise you up with him in his glories. I know you know all this. We've been through this a lot in 1 Peter so far. But this is, we have to talk about this. This is the core and this is the root of your privilege. This is the, the plain pizza upon which he's going to put every other topping. This is the, the plain vanilla yogurt he's going to put all the really good stuff on top of. So we have to cover that. Salvation and grace in Christ. But then there's a lot more we can say. That's just the foundation. Let's go deeper and deeper and see more and more of our privilege. So reason number two. You're privileged, first of all, because you have salvation and grace in Christ. Okay, sermon over. Reason number two, you're privileged because of who gave this to you. So for our second point, we get to dive a little bit into pneumatology. That's uh, Holy Spirit theology. Uh, this passage is all about how the Holy Spirit gave you this salvation. He's actually mentioned here twice. Did you notice that? First, he's revealed as the person from the past that predicted your salvation through the prophets. Babe Ruth, he called it out. It's going to happen. Verse 10, 11. Concerning this salvation, 
the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. It's coming. Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So in this passage, we're hearing about the Holy Spirit, how he spoke through the prophets, how he wrote through the prophets. We hear about how he called out everything in advance before it happened. And then we hear about how he actually let the prophets know. We think the prophets, based on this passage, knew that these prophecies were all for you. That they're prophesying for a future time, for the people living in the last days, for you. Because you're actually living in a day when you can see the fulfillment. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. So the Holy Spirit gave you grace through the predictions and writings of the prophets. Because he told you beforehand about sufferings. He says it's all about Christ's sufferings and the glories of Christ. He says he told us beforehand about all of Christ's sufferings, about his death on the cross, Psalm 22. About his judgment by God in Isaiah 53. About his betrayal by his friends in Zechariah 11. He told you beforehand about all of Christ's sufferings. He told you beforehand about all of Christ's glories. His righteous kingdom, Isaiah 11. His ascension to God's right hand, Daniel 7. His joy he'll have with all of us, Zephaniah 3. But then the Holy Spirit's mentioned one more time. He's mentioned about giving you a salvation, giving you a sneak peek at your salvation in the past, but then it gets even better. Second, the Holy Spirit's also revealed to be the one who shared this good news with you in your lifetime. Look at verse 12. It says, The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So this is saying the Holy Spirit shared a life-giving gospel with you through preachers. Uh, God was reaching out. The Holy Spirit was reaching out to you personally through the tongues of those who love you. Think of that. God was reaching out to you through whoever shared the gospel with you. It's also saying that those same gospel preachers, they preached to you by the Holy Spirit's power. Whether it was your mom or your pastor or your best friend or whoever, saying that the Holy Spirit was reaching out, uh, them being an ambassador for Christ, the Holy Spirit was reaching out through them by his power to make it stick in you. So either way you slice it, the Holy Spirit brought you his grace and salvation himself. Holy Spirit called out his gospel beforehand. He preserved it for you in the scriptures, so you knew it was legitimate. He used a preacher to press it on your soul in particular. Holy Spirit having you in mind as he preached through men. Now there are a lot of implications you could draw out of this text. Implications for the Trinity. Notice how he's called the Spirit of Christ in verse 11. You're seeing two persons in one God here. It's called the Spirit of Christ. Or implications for the Bible. This confirms that the words of the Bible are the words of the Holy Spirit. These are the prophecies of the Holy Spirit. Confirms that the words of the New Testament are just as authoritative as the words of the Old Testament. Confirms that all of the words of Scripture are meant to testify about Christ, about his sufferings and his glories. It's all here in this text. You've got, you've got theology proper. You've got bibliology. You've got pneumatology. Just really foundational things. It's actually what Christ said on the road to Emmaus. I think that this saying is ringing in Peter's ears from Luke 24. As he writes this, look what Jesus says in Luke 24, 25. Jesus says to the men on the road to Emmaus, he says, Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, sufferings, glories? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All this has implications for evangelism, too, because you're reading here about how the Holy Spirit reaches out to people through people. How that when you go to evangelize to somebody, the Holy Spirit will help you share the gospel. So there's a lot of theology here. A lot of rich, systematic theology in this passage. But I think the biggest takeaway for Peter, you just boiled it down to what's his big point? His big point is, you're so privileged. You're so privileged to, be, to have been given such a great salvation. But not only that, you were given this grace intentionally, pointedly, powerfully by the working of the Holy Spirit who wanted to give it to you. Wanted to give it to you, gave it to you through all of time past, and then in a moment in time empowered a, a man or a woman to bring it to your doorstep. He's been revealing and purposing this salvation for you for a long time. And he's placed it in your hands, and he's placed it in your heart. That's the second reason why you're so privileged. So privileged because you have this great salvation and grace. You're so privileged because he brought it to you himself. He wanted you to have it. Holy Spirit empowered. Reason three. Why you're so privileged. You're also privileged because of when he gave it to you. I've often thought while I'm in the shower, I thought, I'm so glad that I live in a day where I don't have to bring the water in from a nearby creek heat it up in a, in a big bathtub for all my kids, and then hop in lukewarm after everybody's already had a bath. I thought, I'm so glad I'll have to bury my food underground or cover it in salt to be able to keep... I have refrigerators! And I've thought so many times, there are so many reasons why I'm glad that I'm born now and not, like, at any other time in history. I'm glad I wasn't born in the days of the Black Death. Glad I wasn't born in the days of Genghis Khan or any other day, really, but... So we're glad we're born when we're born, but here's another reason to be glad you're born when you're born. This passage points out that one of the biggest privileges for a Christian is to be born after Christ came. Think about that. See, a major point of this section is that the Old Testament saints would have killed to be in your position. I mean that metaphorically. They would have killed to be in your position. Verses 10-11 say in Greek, they say that they searched and searched and search to find out just a glimpse of what you know. Actually, all three of those words, they mean essentially the same thing. Inquired, searched out. They describe how you might scour a house for something, how you might search a city for something, or maybe more relevantly, how you might search the scriptures. Just read it. Try to figure it out. Try to piece all the pieces together. How to see what's going to happen. And At the end of the day, these, all three of these words, they... They talk about a careful search for more information about the gospel. And two of the three words are actually compounded with prepositions to intensify their meaning, meaning, very technically in Greek, they really searched. They were really looking into these things. So all this is to say the Old Testament prophets were desperate to know everything that you take for granted in Sunday school. They wanted to know, who is this Messiah going to be? They wanted to know, when is this Messiah going to get here? How exactly is it all going to work out in the end? And they're given little tastes of God's gospel truth. They have these shadowy pictures of the Messiah. They have detailed hints at wonderful things to come, but they're still trying to figure it all out. 
they're still probably feeling like how we feel when we read Revelation sometimes, just trying to puzzle out all these things. How does this all, what does he mean when, what is going to happen? But just appreciate for a moment how blessed you are to be born in this day and age. I mean, you're not looking forward to a future salvation. You have it. You've got the down payment. You're wearing the ring. The, the cat's in the bag. His word talks about grace and salvation like they're present possessions for you. John 5.24 Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. You've started eternal life. And it's not just that you have it. It's that it's so clear for you. Your youngest children know exactly what the Messiah did to save the world from sin. They can tell you. The most mature of us can trace it out in masterpiece books of logic, like the ones written by Paul, like Romans. You can study all the intricacies and all the ins and outs and how it worked with everything in the past, how it's going to happen in the future. And, and you live in an era that follows centuries of theological debate, centuries of study, which have largely settled a lot of the hardest controversies for us, at least the most important controversies for us. You, it's so much clearer for you than it's ever been. And it's not just clear for you, but it's also certain. It's also confirmed for you. You live at a time when you get to see prophecy and fulfillment. In days past, they're just like, well, we got this prophecy, but you get to see how it all fulfilled. You live at a you live at a time when you're unlike every other religion in the world. You can claim specifically fulfilled hundreds of them. You live at a time when you can read multiple accounts of the Messiah's life. You have eyewitness records of his miracles, of his sacrificial death, of his indisputable resurrection. You live in a day when there is no serious doubt about Jesus' historicity. That he's completely different than any other man who's ever lived on the face of this planet. How amazing it is to live at a time when you have so much to go by. So much confirmation. Old Testament saints had a right to be jealous. Jesus says in Matthew 13, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. He says to the apostles who saw him, but more relevantly for us, and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You're so privileged, brothers and sisters, so privileged. You've got so much. You think sometimes, oh, I've got so little to go by. It's so ethereal. So, you know, you've got so much to go. How could he give you more? He's, you've got so much to go by. How about one more reason for your privilege? We're checking our privilege in a godly way. Reason number four. You're privileged because of who he didn't give all this to. Of course, we're talking about angels. But not just fallen angels who have no shot at redemption. It's actually already an unspeakable privilege that you can be saved when they cannot. That beggars my belief. The brightest angels of heaven that fell can't be saved. But you can. Okay, we're actually not talking about them. We're actually talking about holy angels, which takes it up a notch for me. Because this point's just amazing to me. You know about angels. You know just enough about angels. They are so much more glorious than you. They are bright. They are holy. 
They're happy. They get to go in and out of God's presence, serving him perfectly forever. And I'm sure if God told them to, they could just melt you by their appearing. They are so glorious. And yet for all that, holy angels are nowhere near the center of God's great plan of redemption. God uses them in his plan of redemption. Think of Gabriel announcing the good news. Think of the angels at the tomb, the angels in the sky. Think of, he used them, but there's still a lot that they don't know about what's going on in the plan of redemption. It's, the plan of redemption is just not about them. It's about God's purposes for us and through us for all creation. You have to think of that. That The most amazing God-glorifying purpose for all creation has its focal point in us. That's why verse 12 says that these things are things into which angels long to look. Now there's a lot packed into that statement. It uses the Greek word for a strong desire. When you read long, you should think they really long. Angels really want to look at what's going on with us. It uses the Greek word for peeping in, kind of peeping in a window. That's the sense of the word. Uh, trying to catch a glimpse of something. The angels just want to catch a little peep at what God's got in store for us. They're watching. The verbs in the present tense, you think, well, they already know it all. They, they, they know the whole story. Well, no, that's not the case. In the verbs in the present tense, it, it's suggesting, no, they, they still long to see what God's doing. They're still not totally filled in on everything. The story's not completely done yet. They're kind of watching each episode here on earth with bated breath. The greatest reality show. Us messed up humans. Angels are watching, brothers and sisters. They're watching you. And we've got confirmation of this. Jesus says in Luke 15, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They have the biggest parties when they see us repent. They're watching in amazement at all of this. How can that not give you a sense of privilege? These bright, glorious beings are flabbergasted in a good way over what God is doing in this sphere with you. You are the focal point of this plan of redemption. Of course, God getting the glory, but it's operating on you. And the holy angels of God are longing to see what's, what God's up to in you. Your salvation and every step of your sanctification elicits angels' wonder and praise for God. And you realize your privilege when you consider that he's given all of this to you and not to angels. Not to angels. Who are infinitely more deserving. That's our last thought about privilege for tonight. Those four things, those toppings, those takes a great thing and makes it greater, doesn't it? Now to start wrapping things up, I'll actually readily admit that by all appearances, Many of you are not all that privileged. Earthly speaking, some of you have chronic pain. Some of you face devastating loss. Some of you are marginalized in the workplace. Some of you struggle against serious besetting sins every day and you can't beat them and, and it's, it's a grind. There are a lot of ways that you don't look all that privileged on the spiritual level. Sometimes it's hard to appreciate all this privilege because it's so easy to take it for granted and it, our, we take it by faith, not by sight. But by faith, from what Peter's saying here, 
by faith we see that you're not pitiable. No, no, you are privileged. Recap of everything. You've been given grace and salvation and the good news of Jesus Christ. You've been the object, the special object of the Holy Spirit's salvation through others. From time immemorial, he holds out a prophesied word to you. And you've been touched by the power of his preached word, him speaking through men and women. You live at a time when the gospel is clearer than it's ever been, when it's more confirmed than it's ever been. And you walk with God to the amazement of holy angels in heaven. And so you do suffer. It's true. None of this is meant to say, well, just suck it up. You suffer. It's not meant to say that. But I'll remind you again as we go through 1 Peter. It's all part of it for the privileged sons of God. Suffering's a part of it. Because you're still a human. God never promised, I'll take away all their suffering immediately in this life. No, they're still, suffering's still part of it. Like verse 11 says, you're a follower of Christ. A Christ who went through sufferings to get to glories. So don't forget that as a follower of Christ, it's the same order for you. It's sufferings and then glories. All that to say, hang in there, Christians. You are privileged, very privileged. Today you suffer. But these privileges will be more and more apparent. They'll be very apparent for you very soon. Very soon. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so mindful of the fact as I preach this, I'm preaching this to many sufferers. Some private, some public, some intense, some just a daily grind. So Lord, we pray, give us faith to see this privilege. Give us faith to see the the wonders of this salvation and and the, the concentrated effort of your love and All these things, heavenly reality. Help us to hang on by faith, O Lord, through all this suffering. We do so love you. We are privileged, O Lord, indeed, to follow our God, who suffered for us and has entered into glories, and so we will suffer with you in faith, looking forward to your glories. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.